You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eric Weiner is a correspondent for National Public Radio. He's been based in New Delhi, Jerusalem, and Tokyo, and reported for more than 30 countries. He's written a book titled The Geography of Bliss, One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Weiner. I am happy to be here. (laughs) You are. Well, uh, I find that a little bit difficult to believe, given (laughs) the Uh, tenor of your book. Yeah, I was being a little facetious. But I'm not as grumpy as I was when I first set out to write the book. One of the things that, that struck me right off the bat when I read this book was your Alan Watts analogy. Is it a circle or a hole? I, I think you're a hole running, <laughs> circling the globe, sucking in happiness. I'm not that bad. I'm no grumpier probably than your average American middle-aged journalist. You know? um, but, I, you know, I, I mean, I think a lot, of, in all seriousness, I think a lot of Americans do suffer from what, what um, one historian calls the unhappiness of not being happy. Um, we, especially people in your state, California, uh, uh, aspire to happiness and really expect to be happy, and if we're not, we're terribly disappointed. Um, that's not the way most of the world works. That's not the way most of humanity has lived their lives uh, for centuries. I mean, happiness was reserved for, for the gods and the fortunate few. It wasn't something that everyone aspired to and everyone expected. This is a relatively uh, modern phenomenon. Well, what, what I found interesting was that most people, when they go searching for happiness, they look on the inside, and you yourself uh, describe yourself as a fan of self-help books. Right. An addict might be a, a better word. I'm a self-help book addict. Um, I wonder if there's a book to help people like me. Maybe there is. Um, but, yeah, I, I have a large stack of, uh, of self-help books that could probably fill up a, a bookshelf or two or three. And uh, I think, you know, I'm like a lot of people that way. I've been looking for the answer inside. And these books basically tell us that happiness lies inside of us. You know, if we can just get in touch with our inner child and our inner this and inner that, that we would be happy. And, you know, on one level, there is some truth to that, but I think it's really overstated, and I think this focus on the inner, inner, inner can be actually quite narcissistic and, and ultimately self-defeating. And what I argue in this book is that happiness does not lie inside of us. It lies actually out there, or more precisely, in our relationships with other people. And those relationships take very different forms in different countries, and, and I think that goes a long way towards explaining why some countries are happier than others. So you went searching for a place where you'd be surrounded by happiness and would hope to absorb it like a sponge. Essentially, I was hoping to at least pick up a few pointers in these places. So it was, in that sense, a kind of selfish uh, journey. But, you know, it was also, also an intellectual adventure. I was trying to you know, do the opposite of what I've been trained to do as a foreign correspondent, which is seek out misery and report on that. I was, you know, had to unlearn that and try to go around the world um, in a way, using some of the same, same skills that acquired as a foreign correspondent, trying to figure out how to penetrate and probe a society that you've just recently arrived in. But instead of looking for the misery, as I said, looking for the happiness. And, and it was actually, I mean, to be honest, more difficult than it sounds. I mean, some people listening might think, oh, what a scam. This guy spent a year, you know, traveling around the world looking for happiness. Nice job, buddy. But um, 
But in fact, it's hard. It's hard to get people to talk about happiness. In the English language, and in fact, in most languages, we have many, many more words at our disposal to describe unhappy states of mind than happy ones. And people just are not very good at explaining why they're happy. They'll just say, I'm happy. End of discussion. And you have to really probe to get at why they're happy. Well, one of the things that you point out is that there haven't been many studies of happiness. Well, for most of you know the history of the social sciences, of uh, sociology, psychology, certainly economics, the dismal science, they, they, you're right, they ignored happiness. Um, they really just studied sick minds and sick societies and diseased you know, countries in, in every sense of the word. But that is changing, and there is now a burgeoning science of happiness or a positive psychology movement, and it's, you know, it's run by a few, uh, probably count them on two fingers, two hands rather, ten people uh, in the country who are really focused on this full time. And, you know, they are essentially churning out lots of papers. There's a journal of happiness studies. There is a world database of happiness, a real place located in in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. In fact, I visited there. I started my research there to try to put my finger on, you know, not just who is happy, but where are they happy. Oh, and you met the world's premier happyologist. What a great word. <laughs> uh, Ruth Wienhoven. Good pronunciation, yes. Um, Ruth Wienhoven is uh, probably about 60 years old, I imagine. He's a uh, a Dutch professor of sociology who, back in the 60s when he was studying sociology, went to his professor and said, you know, his mentor, and, and I guess he was a grad student at the time, and said, look, I'd like to study happiness and happy places. And, and you know, his uh, academic uh, advisor essentially told him to shut up and don't mention that word again, that happiness was not a serious subject. And, and Root knew he was onto something, and he's been pursuing it ever since. And he has compiled in one location essentially the accumulated knowledge that we have as human beings about what makes us happy and what doesn't. And what really interests me is where we're happy and where we're not. And, and so you went, consulted the World Database of Happiness, WDH, right. and looked up where people were happy. And it wasn't always what we'd expect, was it? No. I mean, I think, you know, we have this image in our minds. If you think of a happy place, it usually involves a beach, often a palm tree, perhaps a drink with a little umbrella in it, you know, and that sort of thing, and we think, well, that's that's happiness, that's paradise. And, you know, the, the data suggests otherwise, you know, that there's no correlation between palm trees and happiness and no connection between little drinks with umbrellas in them and happiness. And it is not these these tropical paradises, Caribbean islands or other places that are that are the happiest. It's actually countries like Iceland, Denmark, Switzerland, in other words, pretty cold places, um, and not our notion of paradise at all. Uh, so it's there are a lot of, uh, I guess you would call them, counterintuitive findings at the at the WDH, the World Database of Happiness. One of the things that, that I found really interesting about this book was the way you wrote it. Uh, you have a kind of uh, a morose uh, approach with your prose, but it, it's really enjoyable. And it, as you say, it's counterintuitively your morose, realistic approach yields a really happy reading experience. <laughs> I appreciate that, Rick, but it's because I don't, I mean, some people have called this a self-help book, um, not really. Some people have called it a travel book, sort of, but it's a travel log of ideas, really, because I'm, I'm really tracing this idea of happiness around the world. And, you know, I go in, as you say, with eyes wide open, you know, I go to these countries not, 
you know, not with these sort of la-la land glasses on that, you know, everything is wonderful here. I realize there are problems in these places. Um, but, I, again, the opposite of being a foreign correspondent, I'm trying to focus on what works here and what what is good. And, um, you know, it, it's surprising sometimes. I mean, it is you can you can have a country that is otherwise you know, maybe not a democracy, maybe a bit of a mess economically. And as Americans, we tend to write that country off in terms of, well, yeah, maybe – Maybe they need our help financially, and we should help these people out. But we don't think we can learn anything from them. And and, and I, I think that's just wrong-headed. I think, you know, this country, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, we are, by definition, we have incorporated ideas from around the world. And uh, some, somewhere along the way, we, we thought we were too good for that. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's a lot to learn from, from the rest of the world. Well, in the Netherlands, of course, you pursue pleasure, and you uh, talk a little bit about the balance between happiness and pleasure. Right. Right, because a lot of you know when we think about happiness these days, right? We we associate it with pleasure, don't we? And, you know, happiness is a good feeling, a warm feeling inside. And okay, the Netherlands is if you're a pleasure seeker, you know, if you're a hedonist extraordinaire, the Netherlands is is the place for you because you know pr prostitution is legalized, uh, some drugs, uh, marijuana, hashish are legalized, and so. I mean, as anyone who reads the book will soon discover, I, I dive head in um, head first in the Netherlands, not to the prostitution side, but to the drug side. And I, I partake in some Moroccan hashish in, in Rotterdam, uh, perfectly legal, of course. No laws were broken. You walk into these coffee shops, they're euphemistically called. They don't really serve coffee, and, and you order hashish or marijuana. And, and I did that, and I got to thinking, as one does when one smokes Moroccan hashish, um, about the nature of happiness and pleasure, and and particularly what a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher named Robert Nozick, uh, what he said. He he devised a thought experiment. He said, okay, if you were strapped into a machine that could make you happy, safely make you happy for the rest of your life, would you want it? Uh, would you? Can I ask you? Uh, no. No. You're probably like most people that way. You know, we say we just want to be happy, but if really given the chance to be strapped into this happiness machine, we would say no, because we, we want to earn our happiness. We also want to feel unhappy at times so we can appreciate the happy moments. We, we don't want to be overwhelmed with this sensation of pleasure constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, um, you know, while the Netherlands is great in one in a lot of respects, it's a very tolerant country, and tolerance has been linked to happiness. Uh, the, the pleasure aspects and the indulgence in, in vices, or what we would consider vices, is 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 not for me ultimately. And I sort of left the Netherlands thinking, nice place to visit and and smoke some Moroccan hashish, but not necessarily a place I'd want to live. Well, even the cover of your book suggests that maybe happiness is not necessarily a destination. Uh, no, it's, I mean, Henry Miller said, um, one's destination is never a place. It's a new way of looking at things. And I think that's travel at its best when done properly. That's what it is, a new way of looking at things. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. And, you know, it's, it is, you know, it's not, it's about place, but it's, you know, as I think you understand, it's about more than place. I mean, these places, Iceland, Qatar, Bhutan, I mean, these are, these are real places, yes, but they're also manifestations of one particular idea of happiness. I mean, if you believe happiness is money, then yeah, the Qatar, this Persian Gulf nation, fabulously wealthy, is is the manifestation of that. In Qatar, you talk about what I, something I think is really interesting: the hedonic treadmill. 
Yes. Yes. Have you do, do you have you been on one? <laughs> I've tried to avoid no, it at all. No, you actually costs. probably have. If you're American and you're alive, you've been on one. You just didn't know it. I mean, this is essentially the notion that we can get used to anything, and that what brings us pleasure today. You know, that great meal that you had at a restaurant, you know, try eating at the same restaurant seven nights out of the week. I guarantee you on the third, fourth, or tenth night, it won't taste as good. We get used to the good things in life like that, um, and we get used to the bad things as well. I mean, there was a study done back in 1978 by a psychologist named Philip Brickman, and he studied a group of uh, paraplegics, people who were in accidents and, and became paralyzed from the waist down. And sure enough, a few months later, they were reported being much less happy than they were before the accident. But what's interesting is he followed them for years, and after a couple of years, these people essentially returned to more or less the same state of happiness they were before their accident. Uh, they had uh, been on, they had adapted hedonically or psychologically, however you want to put it. They had adapted uh, to their new situation, and we we don't think we can do that. We don't, if you said if you're in a car accident and you're paralyzed, would you be just as happy two years later? We think no. And we think if you win the lottery and you're fabulously wealthy, would you be happier? We think yes. No. It's not, that's not what the science tells us, that we, we often return to where we started. Happyology triumphs again. Yeah. Uh, Darn those happyologists. <laughs> What's wrong with them? Well, Ruining all our fun. <laughs> they better stop it. Yeah. Now, now in Iceland, one of the things that I just – it really blew me away. Only in 1989 was the ban on beer ended. How could that be a happy country? <laughs> well, because before 1989, there was no – this was the weird thing about Iceland. Before 1989, uh, you could drink vodka and scotch, but you couldn't drink beer. Does that make any sense? I mean, I, no. <laughs> I asked Icelanders about this, and they – they were like, well, you know, I have to I have to back up a step. Basically, in Iceland, they drink very, very heavily on the weekends, but only on the weekends, Friday, Saturday night, into Sunday morning. If you even have a, a glass of wine or beer on a Tuesday or Wednesday evening, you're labeled a lush. Um, so they engage in what I call bracketed indulgence, and they claim it's because of, well, this is their excuse for all their behavior. It's because of their Viking past, you know, that they... They used to have just have this binge mentality. They couldn't count on the next uh, harvest or the next haul of fish. So when it did come, they just devoured it. And so that's why they drink like fish on the weekends. Um, so I guess the feeling was, you know, the concern was if we allow people to drink beer, they'll be lightly buzzed, you know, all the time, as opposed to this sort of cycle of drunkenness and sobriety that they had perfected. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a strange but yet extremely happy place. I have to ask you a little bit about the writing of this book, because there are so many wonderful, uh, like little asides that you say. Uh, when you are in in Iceland, you you they have a peculiar way of describing the PC, and and you say, "I like the way it makes my PC sound like something magical and vaguely ominous," which actually it is. <laughs> well, they have. They have, I tried to to be, to actually to be personal in this book, which is for a journalist, you know, it's you're working against type and you have to unlearn things but i try to just absorb these places and not describe them in well to be honest in the, the kind of hacking ways that a lot of journalists do describe places there's few few clichés and stereotypes we tend to rely on um so i appreciate the compliment about my writing as far as the scene you were talking about i mean the icelanders love language they love poetry and if if they 
need a new word to describe a jelly donut or a computer or whatever, they'll come up with an Icelandic word, a word from their past, from the, from the language of the Vikings, which is what they speak. And they'll harken back a thousand years to come up with, you know, you know tolva, prophet of numbers, or, or, or something like that. And it's just fascinating the way they do that. You didn't just visit happy places, did you? No. I thought to really understand happiness, you needed to travel to some miserable places as well. Um, because if you think about it, you know, we know something through its opposite. Hot has its meaning because of cold, and Mozart has meaning as beautiful music because of Barry Bandelow. They, they work off of each other. And um, I hope there are no Barry Bandelow fans. But anyway, you, you get the point I'm making. So, so I set out uh, in one chapter in particular to go and visit the world's least happy country. Which proves to be Moldova. Yes, and you're pronouncing it correctly. You're elongating the vowel sound so that you sound kind of bummed out when you say it. Moldova. Um, it even sounds melancholy. And it is a small country, uh, a former Soviet republic, nestled between Romania and Ukraine, two unhappy countries in their own right. And it ranks on uh, Ruth Wienhoven's uh, database of happiness. It ranks as the least happy country in the world. And I went there to find out why. What, what, what did you find out? Well, I found out that indeed it is a miserable place. It's not just a statistical anomaly. Um, they are unhappy. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just a dour, a dour place. And I, I think Moldovans would agree with me. I know they do. Uh, those who are still in the country, many go abroad. You know, if you ask Moldovans there why they're unhappy, they'll say, oh, it's because of money. We don't have enough money. And you know, on the one hand, that is true. It is a poor country, but it's, it's not the poorest in the world. I mean, countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, are much poorer than Moldova. So you know, that, that alone doesn't explain it. I think part of it is a relative poverty. They're, they're certainly poor compared to their neighbors to the West in Europe, you know, to... to even to Romania, to Poland, to Germany, and France, certainly. So, and that's where they're looking. And we think anyone who, you know, if you live in your neighborhood, you're not comparing yourself to Donald Trump. You're comparing yourself to the people next door. You know, Joe next door got a new car. Why can't I afford a new car? And and that's what the Moldovans do. And it's also, a, it is a, a nation mired, mired in envy. There's a lot of envy in Moldova, and they, people would rather see their neighbors fail than see themselves succeed, and that's just not a recipe for happiness. But you have do find many entertaining recipes for happiness. One of the places I thought was very interesting was India. Yes. Um, and now, India is a country that, again, doesn't rank particularly high on the happiness scale, but think about it. I mean, uh, for, well, for many, many decades, probably centuries, actually, Westerners have been going there looking for their happiness. E.M. Forrester traveled there, and uh, the Beatles famously meditated on the Ganges River, and, and people continue to go there because they think there's something spiritual about India. They'll be happier there, more fulfilled, and, uh, and it's a fascinating, fascinating place, and it's a bit of a conundrum, an unhappy country, people with Westerners flocking there for happiness. Well, what they seek the happiness in is in meditation, and you would attempt this. <laughs> I did. I did. You know, I had lived in India, actually, as a correspondent for NPR uh, back in the mid-'90s. But, you know, I was a journalist and, you know, didn't have a lot of time for meditation and didn't really explore that whole 
spiritual side to India. It wasn't in the cards as a as a you know serious foreign correspondent for NPR. So I always wanted to go back to an ashram or sort of you know spiritual retreat and and I did. I went to one outside of Bangalore, the sort of high tech capital, Silicon Valley of India, and uh, it's run by a guru named Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who's extremely popular not only in India but around the world and. I spent three days there attempting, uh, basically attempting to get myself into and then out of the lotus position, I think is how I spent most of my time. Um, I was a a failed meditator for the most part. We've been speaking with Eric Weiner. His new book is The Geography of Bliss. We're going to leave some of his countries undiscovered. Thank you for joining me, Eric. I am happy to have done it. It's been a pleasure, really. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.